It seems that despite centuries going on millennia of teaching, people cannot help but think that Jesus or God, if he loves us, is supposed to act sort of like a genie. That if he loves us, he will respond immediately when I have a problem or when I have a need. And yet the human, the Christian experience of God is one that perpetuate, perpetually perplexes us because our experience is that it seems like for so often God does not respond. Sometimes, indeed many times, things look bleak. Sometimes things have the ring of finality and certainty is attached to those events, those occurrences, and we are convinced that this is end of story, period, close the book. Jesus is wanting us to see that where we see end, he sees continuance. He wants to challenge us as we look at what he's doing in our lives or what he's seeming to not be doing, that he calls us to increasing faith and to alter our perspectives about our understanding of reality to include death itself. So what I want to do now is we're going to walk through this passage because I think it's beautiful. I was, I was amazed as I was studying this passage in preparation for this morning uh, just how beautiful of a story it is. And I was convicted in my heart about how oftentimes I can read passages like this. We read of the miracles of Jesus and it's just ho-hum. We read it, oh yeah, he, yeah, there's Jesus raising the dead again. That's what, you know... Do, you, do, do we fathom how unbelievably sh earth-shaking that would be to see? And Jesus did it. So in this story, though, there's so many details that underscore the kind of depth and intimacy of relationship that Jesus wants to have with us. And he's calling us to trust even when it looks like the story's over. Just a second, I'm not immune from whatever's going around. All right. So I want to walk you through this, verse, this, this passage, okay? And then we're going to make some observations. So in verse 21, Jesus gets back to the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, okay? So he's back on home turf, so to speak. And he's there, as usual, there's a crowd. But then someone finds him. His name is Jairus. He's one of the few people in these kind of stories who's ever given a name, which is significant because it's, refer it's making reference to the fact that even after the fact, like in the era when Mark is writing, this is a point of reference to verify the authenticity of the story. Anytime you see someone named, remember that this is being presented to us as history, as verifiable history. Okay, this isn't just a fairy tale, once upon a time. So from the vantage point of our original audience, by naming someone, 
that's thereby creating accountability to the authenticity of what's being said. Now, this someone who's being named, Jairus, is a cultural bigwig. He's a ruler of the synagogue, which is sort of a lay ruling elder type position. Okay? He's not a priest, but he's part of the religious establishment who governs the local synagogue, which is the center of their life in that era. So he is a bigwig in the town. He's a respected man. He's a respectable man. He's an important man. And if you know anything about those honor cultures, big, important, respectable, center of the culture of life type people didn't do certain things. They didn't run. And they certainly didn't bow down and beg. But yet, that's exactly what happens here. This ruler of this synagogue comes and he's looking for Jesus. You see, he's at the end of his rope. His daughter is dying. It says she's at the point of death. And what sometimes we think that means that she's in critical condition in the ICU. No, she's at the end of hospice. She's about to die. Okay? Imagine the faith it took for him to even leave her side in that moment. I remember when my mom, when I got the call that my mom was dying in 2005, I was in D.C. I stopped what I was doing and I, 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 I got to her. And that's what most of us do. When we hear that someone we love is dying, we get to them. And here, at her absolute last moment, he's desperate to save his daughter and so he risks saying goodbye in that last moment. I've got to find the one man who can save my daughter. And so he comes to Jesus. And he, you see his desperation in that he throws aside every cultural convention and he throws himself on the ground. Here an important man, he's not in a position to command, nor can he cajole. All he can do is earnestly entreat, which is a polite way of saying, beg. Please. And you see his tenderness in that he calls her my little daughter. Now, we just read that. Okay, well, she's 12 years old, as we've learned. 12 years old in that culture. She's on the cusp of womanhood. She's right on the verge of being marriage age. Of, she's on the cusp of starting her life. So he's not making a scientific statement that she's a two-year-old or a toddler. He's making an emotional statement. He's saying, my little girl, my baby, she's dying. Come, you're her only chance. Please. And then Jesus doesn't say a word. Look, have you noticed? There's no word recorded. He just says, and he goes with him. Can you imagine what this guy is thinking? There's a chance. There's a chance. He came. All we got to do now is get back to my house, get through this confounded crowd. He's desperate. And so, he's at this point, his eyes are open to the possibility of a different outcome. But then we learn 
that he's not the only desperate person in that crowd. And so we learn about this woman who is not named. She's not given a name, but we're told about her pitiful, pitiable plight. How for the last 12 years, she's suffered from hemorrhaging, most certainly a gynecological issue. And so in that day, in that culture, because of the law of God, she was unclean, which meant that she was ostracized. You get the impression from this passage, she is alone. A woman alone in that day and age was not in a safe situation. And she had suffered much under many physicians. She had sought out everyone who she could possibly find and who knows what torturous type of remedies they had attempted. But she had suffered much and then, as now, health care cost. And she had spent everything she had. So now, in addition to being isolated and marginalized and alone, she was impoverished. And all her efforts had got her nothing. In fact, she was getting worse. Her prognosis was grim. And she's desperate. I'm going to die alone. And she had heard the reports of Jesus. So she snuck up and she appears to have had a misunderstanding. She appears to have been operating with a quasi-magical notion that, 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 the, that the powers that he had were somehow related to him like a talisman. And so if I just touch his garment, I'll be healed. That's all she wanted. I want to be healed, and he's the only one who can do it. I just got to sneak in there, touch his garment, I'll be healed, and then I'll be on my way. She didn't want to deal with the hassle of being ridiculed, for she, as an, as an unclean woman, going up and possibly talking to or touching a holy man, she didn't want to face the scorn, the ridicule, the rejection. Twelve years of being marginalized will callousize your heart. She just wanted to be healed. And she goes up, and she touches him, his garment, just the edge, just the edge. And immediately she feels better. She knows she's better. And then the unexpected happens. Jesus suddenly stops. Jesus stops in his tracks. And what he says confounds the disciples. They think, he's, they think his question is ridiculous. You're being thronged by people. Have you ever seen like a rock star walking and, and they're just, everyone's just trying to, ah, and they're just trying to touch him? You know, they, they desperately want some of his awesomeness to rub off on him or something, you know? Every, he's being thronged, he's being mobbed. And, and the disciples are like the secret service, just trying to push people off just so he can make his way through the crowd. And Jesus says, Someone touched me. Well, no kidding, Sherlock. You're in a mob. What do you mean, who touched me? Everyone's touching you. Now, this does go to show the fact that the passage says that he felt power go out from him in this case, and yet there were so many people touching him. It shows that Jesus wasn't just this walking thing where if you did, in fact, just make contact with him, you were healed. 
Apparently, not everyone else who was touching him was being healed, right? That's why he notices that power goes out from him in this case. And the woman is still close by. She hears, and she knows she's discovered. And she comes, and she's terrified now with fear and trembling. I mean, after all, he took away the disease. Could he possibly curse her? Could he make it worse? She had no other option but to come and explain to him everything that happened. All she wanted was a transaction. But Jesus wants far more for her. After hearing her explain, he responds with this remarkable term. He addresses her, daughter. This is the only time in the Gospels where a woman is singled out and referred to as daughter. He wants her to know, you wanted a transaction. I want a relationship. You wanted to be healed, but I'll tell you what, there's something far more significant here. You're accepted. You are loved. And then he says, go in peace. He pronounces God's peace upon her, thereby signaling his acceptance of her. And then she goes. Now, imagine, if you will, that you're Jairus, because he's standing there. His daughter is at death's door. She's breathing her death rattle. He leaves to go find Jesus. He falls down on the ground. He's begged Jesus, and lo and behold, Jesus decides to come. Yes, yes, things look... But then from his vantage point, all of a sudden, Jesus stops. Why? She's been bleeding for 12 years, Jesus. She'll be bleeding when you come back. Come on. Time is of the essence. My daughter's going to die. What are you delaying for? Just my daughter, my baby girl. And then wouldn't you know it? Even as Jesus is speaking the words to this woman, daughter, go in peace. The messengers show up. Your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. You sort of get the idea from their tone that perhaps they had thought it was too late anyway and that they thought that it was maybe a fool's errand for him to try to get Jesus to intervene. But now, certainly, there's no point in asking Jesus to do anything else because everybody knows that death is the final reality. Death is the final answer and whatever power Jesus had He may have been able to heal, that's great, but it was certainly moot and irrelevant now because, well, she's dead. She's dead. Understand that the messengers in this passage represent that voice in every era, in every circumstance that say that the empirical realities we have before us, have foreclosed on divine possibilities. That what we have now is in fact the final answer. And we have to just 
adjust. And then Jesus, the word here says overhearing them, but that word, verse, that word is translated different ways because it's a kind of a, it's a loaded word. It's not inappropriate to say ignoring them, he addresses. In other words, Jesus hears what they're saying, but he's not giving it any credence. And he wants to distract Jairus, or take his focus off of the news that he has just received. So for the first time, Jesus addresses Jairus. And he gives him a two-part command. Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear. Well, Jairus was already afraid. That's why he had come. That's why he had thrown himself on the ground. That's why he had begged. He was afraid for his daughter. So by saying, do not fear, he's acknowledging that now his fear is even worse. He's afraid that the messengers are right. He's afraid that that it's too late. He's afraid that his daughter's gone. He's afraid of everything. And in this moment of having received the bad news, the threat of this fear expanding and eclipsing out any hope or any light is huge. So Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. Now, he wasn't saying have confidence in confidence and wish upon a star, believe, like you see. Have faith and believe in me. The same belief that he had had that led him to come walk over and find Jesus. Okay, draw upon that and believe even though the risk and fear of fear is so real. And so, they go and they get to his house and as was the custom, they had the hired mourners. Apparently, even poor people, just the cultural thing they did was hired people to mourn. And so even a poor person would be expected to have two flutists and a, and a whaler. Okay? Um, they, we, we have flowers at funerals and stuff. They, they didn't do flowers. They did whalers, professional whalers. And uh, I mean, I, I remember when my grandmother died, uh, it was like a family reunion, and we weren't crying. And my sister-in-law, who was new to the family, she was horrified that we weren't crying. And, and, uh, and my mom looked at her, do you think we're a bunch of babies? And then my uncle gave her a dollar and said, here, I just hired you to be our mourner. <laughs> I mean, we understand that you show love to someone by mourning their passing. And the absence of mourning seems to indicate a lack of love. And so because this daughter was well-loved, and because this was a big wig in the town, they had a big old group of hired mourners there. But we see how insincere their mourning is, because as soon as Jesus says, pipe down, she's not dead, she's only sleeping, what do they do? They laugh at him. Or in the words of the King James, they laughed him to scorn. He's an idiot. It's our job to know when someone's dead, sir. We know he's dead. She's dead. It's our job. Now, Jesus had used a term of, he had used words that provided a double meaning, fantastic double meaning. She's not dead, only sleeping. 
On the one hand, this would enable later on when the girl's seen walking around town, they're all going to have to say, well, I, I, guess she, I guess he was right. She was only sleeping. But from the vantage point of what we know, he's speaking about ultimate reality. She was only sleeping. And so Jesus, only, he goes into the room and he takes her by the hand and he speaks Aramaic. Talitha kumi, which is a euphemism that means little girl arise. And she gets up. And it says in the, one of the bigger understatements in Scripture, they were overcome with amazement. They were overcome with amazement. Who's the they? Everybody in the room. The parents and the disciples. You see, unlike what you're atheistic teachers and, and whatever would tell you, back in the day, they didn't just think that miracles happened. They were just as gritty realists as we are today. And then, just as now, dead people don't come back alive. So when it happened, it blew their socks off. And they had no mental category for what happened. You can imagine the parents, on the one hand, so, I mean, their joy is bursting but at the same time, dead people don't come back alive. And so they had no categories by which to even process what they had just seen. And of course, he tells them to keep it quiet. Because like so much of Jesus' ministry, timing is everything. And I'm continually amazed at how human Jesus' ministry was in that premature revelation of who he was would have undermined his ability to go out and do things. So this is to be kept under wraps for the time being. Now, of course, we know from the Gospel of John that the final, the cherry on the top of Jesus' ministry is the raising of Lazarus. And that is very public. And it's different. There, there Jesus stands out. And as the sovereign Lord, he says, Lazarus, come forth. Here, what does he say? Little girl, arise. Now, okay, little girl, arise. That sounds just like some... You see, that word, that's tr that Aramaic word that meant little girl, arise, that was a euphemism, a pet name. Literally, it means little, little you lamb. But even back in that day and in that culture, they had pet names for their children. Little you lamb was a euphemism that they used for their little kids to denote someone that's precious. Now, in our day, it's acceptable for an older man to speak to a, to a, a younger child as son or daughter, but we know that it's never appropriate to go up to someone and say, Daddy, who's not your daddy, or Mommy. But in that day, it would have been very much the same even for the older people, to the child. In other words, Jesus uses a word for her that really is only appropriate from the lips of her parents or loved ones. Certainly not a stranger. And what we see from this then is Jesus sitting down next to a little girl and taking her hand gently, waking her up as from sleep with the loving tenderness that would be reserved for a parent. And there we see that Jesus is the true family. 
that she has. Jesus doesn't just care for her as one of his creation in that generic sense. She is a precious child of his. So, what does this have to say to us? Well, I think there are a few lessons for us. First, both this woman and this girl are profoundly unclean. The girl's a dead body, okay? And this woman is, a, is having a chronic hemorrhaging issue. Both of these are sort of off limits. You don't touch either of them. Now, Jesus, he is, he's awesome. Remember that the law that said don't touch a dead body or don't touch a woman in your uncleanness was actually, it wasn't just artificially, arbitrarily contrived. It was given by God. So Jesus, you see, as the new lawgiver, that he has the divine prerogative to sort of revamp the code as he sees fit because he is the lawgiver. But then we see something remarkable. You see, how things worked is you won't touch someone who's unclean because uncleanness transfers. It's like mold. It spreads. But Jesus, he's like a walking ground zero glowing orb of holiness. And so when uncleanness comes into contact with him, not only does the uncleanness not spread, but Jesus' holiness and cleanness actually purifies the uncleanness. And so Jesus, he touches this woman, or she touches him, and she's made clean. He touches a dead body, And she's made clean. There are so many people who think that they are defiled and dirty and off limits. And Jesus is not afraid to get in and step in your mess to clean you. And here's something a little further. We're his body. Did you know that we are to be his ministers When we see an unclean person, are we afraid to step into their mess to bring Christ's healing to them? Or do we turn away from them and cross the street or look away or hope someone else will do it because we ourselves don't want to be contaminated? The second thing, and this doesn't, I feel like I have to say this just because there's so much leftist Jesus thought, based upon a misinterpretation of a few passages, there are some people out there who think that Jesus positively doesn't care for the haves of society and that he really only cares about the have-nots. That God is the God pretty much... The people that God really cares about are the have-nots. And it's true that he cares about the have-nots. But he cares about the haves too. He cares about Jairus. He doesn't just brush him off and say, you've had your success in life. Deal with the fact that your daughter's dying. Death happens. Get over it. He goes to him. And he goes to her. All right? So this tells me, this is an example right here in a few verses of Jesus reaching across the aisle and embracing the spectrum of society. The haves and the have-nots. So often we posture ourselves as trying to reach one or the other or something in between. Why do we do that? 
Embrace who comes. Reach the haves. Reach the haves nots. It's not our job or place to decide who is worthy or who we should be focused on. Third, and this one I find troubling, but it's true, and I want us to really wrestle with it. In the Reformed tradition, we value theological precision. In fact, I think, unfortunately, that I've heard too many people make salvation harder than it has to be. This woman very clearly has imperfect faith. I did not read a commentary that disagreed, that they all think that this woman has a magical perspective. She thinks that it's Jesus' clothes are like a talisman, that if she touches them, she'll be made well. She has imperfect faith. And Jesus still honors her for it. It's our job as teachers, as elders, even as deacons, to guard this church and to teach correct doctrine. But let's understand that people start somewhere and sometimes messed up, inaccurate theology is a starting point. And that Jesus is not so concerned that we have all of our theological I's dotted and T's crossed as he is that we desperately understand that he is our only hope. The rest of it can be corrected, which we see Jesus kind of doing when he says, your faith has made you well. Don't, don't, don't go and venerate my jacket. Your faith has made you well. Okay? So let's show graciousness to those who, who may come and have, I don't know, slightly askew understandings of things. We don't leave people with askew understandings of things, but we embrace them as possibly, possibly having genuine. Fourth, Jesus wants to grow your faith. We absolutely hate God's delays. We hate it. We pray, we cry out to him. When something happens, we are convinced, we are convinced that if God cares for us, he will jump up and solve my problem. This woman bled for 12 years. She lost everything. God, why didn't you hear her prayer before then? Jairus, Jesus, time is of the essence. Why are you stopping now? We've got to get to my house. One of the realities of the Bible is that God does not usually work on our timeline. And that bothers us. That really sits, I mean, let's just be, that, that sits like a rock in our gut. Like one of those heavy cheese balls that, you know, that eat at Christmas time. It just sits like a brick. We don't like that. Because I'm suffering. Someone I love is suffering. And yet the lesson we learn time and time and time again 
is that Jesus shows up. God does stuff for his people. We think we're at the 11 o'clock hour and God has a way of showing us you thought you were at the last hour and really you were just at 6 o'clock. Jesus wants to stretch your faith. He wants you to understand how deeply you need him and understand that oftentimes we put limitations on his work. Think about this. Had Jesus gone there real quick, lickety-split, and healed this girl, they would have been happy. They would would have been overjoyed. But raising their daughter from the dead, that's just a whole nother level. Jesus wants the glory, and he wants us to have the good. And God shows up and does his thing on his timeline because he knows what is ultimately best for his glory and our good. And he wants us to trust. Even when the empirics say, your trust is misplaced. Now this passage highlights intimacy. We too often want God to stay out of our life. We want to be like this woman. God, I'm living my life in basic conformity to your commands. Now please just show up and, and heal me of my sickness or my kid's sickness or, 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 or make my marriage better or, 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 or get my kid out of trouble or, or give me a better job or something. But pretty much that's all I want, just a transaction. Here there's profound intimacy. You see the man referring to his daughter as a precious child. You see Jesus referring to her as a beloved daughter. You see Jesus referring to the little girl as a precious ewe lamb. All in an effort to show us that what's important is not the transaction, but the relationship of acceptance. In Christ, you are accepted and clean. And lastly... This passage is wanting to fundamentally shake and shape how we view reality. We understand that when someone dies, that represents finality. I mean, after all, our prayers kind of change as someone goes through the sickness process. You know, they they first get sick and, and we're praying for them, Lord, heal them, heal them, heal them. They get to a point in their hospice care where it's clear to us that God's not going to heal them. And then our prayers change. We'll at least take them peacefully. But by the time they're dead, now we're praying for the family. No, no one, you would think I'm crazy if I came and said, you know, Lord, raise up Grandma Susan. Raise up Uncle Jimmy. Now, I could tell you about how in the medical field, doctors say that there's a number of times where something happens that that defies medical knowledge. The point is not, oh, don't stop believing because God might in fact save your child. Because the reality is that people do die. In fact, it's been appointed unto man once to die. No, The altering of our perception of reality comes in the fact that here Jesus calls us to see death and every other form of finality we think we experience 
is simply the pause of sleep. It really, really does change the way we view reality, the way we view mourning for our, pa- our, our loved ones who pass, the way we view our own mortality, the way we view the, the, the circumstances and the hardships we face when we recognize that they are just sleep. There is only one finality of death you can experience, and that is the thing for which Christ went to the cross to defeat. Hell is the only finality of judgment and death that you can have. This body, it dies, or probably more precisely we should say it goes to sleep. Because in the final day it will be raised. We don't lose consciousness. We immediately are translated and we are with our Savior in heaven forever. This passage challenges us. In this life, you're going to have difficulties. Do you think that the finality that you see here is really final? Do you think that when the empirics tell you that there's no hope, that that is it? Or do you understand that with God all things truly are possible? And things can change just as surely as Pitt kicks a field goal in the last second. Or Iowa. Those are just in, those are insignificant examples, but they illustrate the point that sometimes people... Eternity is the finality. In your life, you're going to have issues. And Jesus wants you to see, no matter how final something may be, keep the door open for divine possibilities. Because in a worst case scenario where someone dies, it's only gone to sleep. And Jesus will be there at the last day to raise you from the ground with the words, my little lamb, arise. Let's pray.